0: here's a target worth attacking at this location. And this is what we think it is. All of the users around the battlefield will then have, you know, the same way that an Uber driver would see current people who want to be picked up. The artillery units can see, uh, what are the possible targets to shoot at? And if I realize that, Hey, my unit's in a good position to fire, our guns are ready. Uh, I can click on that somehow and indicate my unit will take that target on. Um, So it's a distributed system.
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. This month, this podcast is focusing on the war in Ukraine. In just about two weeks, we'll mark one year since Russian President Vladimir Putin announced his, quote, special military operation, sending tens of thousands of Russian soldiers across the Belarus-Ukraine border toward Kyiv. The plan was to take Kyiv in hours. Putin thought his troops would be greeted with flowers. They weren't. And now it's thought that roughly 200,000 Russians have lost their lives in Ukraine. This episode is looking at this David and Goliath story, and it's one that's going to be studied and examined for decades by nations, great and small, and likely by non-state actors our guests say this conflict is different. Space-based assets, especially those from the commercial sector, have made it possible for Ukrainian forces to level the battlefield and punch well above their weight against a major space-faring nation. Ukraine's uncanny and creative ability to access space-based assets, to analyze and synthesize the data, and use it have turned towns like Bakhmut in the east, which this small city really should have been an easy take for Russia. It's now a meat grinder. It's thought that Ukraine's resistance in Bakhmut alone consumes more than 100 Russian souls a day. To understand just how Ukraine has been able to use space assets with such lethality, with tactical and strategic effects, I spoke with Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute. He has been an enlisted, an officer, submariner, and a special assistant to the chief. Of Naval Operations. He's also led studies for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency on new technologies and the future of warfare. And David Burbach, who is an associate professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, who focuses on space. Here's our conversation. Hello, Brian and David. Thank you both for coming on the downlink.
0: Hi, Laura. Hi, Laura. Thanks for inviting me.
1: You know, before we start looking from over 100 kilometers down to the battlefield in Ukraine, we should do a round of introductions as this is the first time for the both of you on the downlink. Brian, you penned the most recent article on the ground effects that space assets have brought to bear, which was published in The Hill. Why don't you start?
2: Uh, Great, Laura. Okay, so I'm Brian Clark. Uh, I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and I'm the director of the Hudson Center for Defense Concepts and Technology, where I uh, look at the intersection of new technology and defense operations and strategy.
1: And David, I've asked you to come on the podcast because an article you published with the Atlantic Council in November. David, tell us a bit about yourself.
0: Hi, sure, Laura. I'm um, David Burbach. I'm a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, where I teach on U.S. foreign policy, military planning, and specifically on space security. Uh, I should add that I'm here in a personal capacity today. I am not speaking on behalf of the Navy.
1: Now, let's begin with the top-level stuff, and that really is, you know, we've had almost a whole year of being able to watch and learn how Ukraine has really put Russia, with its larger military forces on land, in the sea, and in, in the air, on the back foot. Repeatedly, Ukraine has been able to inflict huge losses on Russia's military forces. So, Brian, you wrote in The Hill something like Bradley fighting vehicles are nice to have, but that, quote, allies should give Kiev weapons that exploit the transformation of Ukraine's military into a force that gathers, distributes, and acts on information faster and more lethally than its enemy, unquote, walks through your calculus, which you call decision-making advantage. Brian?
2: Uh, Yeah. So what? we are seeing with Ukraine is they've transformed their military from being a Soviet-type force, which fought using combined arms, you know, using artillery and infantry and armored vehicles, um, to one that really relies on uh, decision-making advantage, meaning they, they get information from commercial and military sources. They're able to synthesize that and use computer-aided decision aids to come up with courses of action and then put those courses of action into effect by communicating rapidly with uh, forces out in the field, using commercial satellite-based, in most cases, communication systems like Starlink. So they've been able to take that kind of Soviet era hardware and turn it into something that is much more effective because they're able to get a decision-making advantage by using modern uh, sensors that are commercial, in a lot of cases, um, decision-making aids that are derived from commercial software that they're getting from commercial, providers like Palantir, and then also commercial communications that they're able to leverage, such as Starlink. So this decision-making advantage allows them to, uh, you know, in military parlance, get inside the OODA loop or the Orient Observe-Orient Decision Act cycle. Um, but more importantly, it allows them to be more effective. They're able to make smarter decisions than the Russians are. And they're able to kind of think moves ahead uh, using these computer-aided decision, or computer-assisted decision aids. So they can go and look at, you know, what, the, what are the Russians likely to do in response? How would I respond to that response? Um, those kinds of things are hard to do when you're you know, doing it with just uh, managing things on a paper chart. Um, they're much easier to do if you're taking advantage of modeling and simulation uh, and computer-assisted decision aids in real time.
1: I know that this is gonna sound like a a simple question and and Brian, I'm I, I want you to answer it. And I'm focusing it narrowly on the power of modern satellite communications, the likes, you know, of, of Starlink, but the effects, the first, second, and third order, you know, they've disrupted Russia's plans. What have been the strategic effects of simply being able to receive data at broadband speeds via Starlink? Because this isn't your father's dial-up connection. And heck, it seems to be perhaps even more powerful than what was available in Operation Iraqi Freedom. What do you think, Brian?
2: Yeah, because what they're able to do uh, is it's both the broadband speeds, but it's also the ubiquity and the resilience of their communications. Because if you are, um, you know, in... U.S. experience, uh, your command posts always have had pretty good you know, broadband access, uh, and you've been able to transmit large files. Uh, the problem is that guys in the field, in the far field, haven't been able to access that same information and build plans. Uh, so when they get cut off from headquarters, they're sort of left to do things based on doctrine or habit. Um, but with Starlink, you can now communicate a much more, much larger amount of information to field leaders that are kind of out at the edge in very austere environments. So it's it's not so much what is able to go to the command post; it's the ability to send to a artillery battery out in the middle of nowhere a picture of the battlefield and say, "Here's what we see. Here's the targets we want you to strike." Um, and then you know the guy out there at the at the field knows how to to act. And if he gets cut off, he knows what the intent was, and he can sort of carry on. And build his own plan using the computer to decide how to proceed against those targets. So the difference is is just the ubiquity of that broadband communication. So it's not just command posts that you know manage the fight; it's also uh, leaders out in the field can manage their own fight.
0: Yeah, Laura, just to, to jump in on that, just to give your, your listeners a sense of how easy this equipment is to, to use, a Starlink ground terminal consists of an antenna that's about the size of a pizza box, uh, electronics it connects to that are like the uh, cable TV box you might have at home, and it can be powered with a fold-out solar panel like you might take camping connected to a car battery, and then you can just plug a, a laptop or, or you know connect to a cell phone via a Wi-Fi signal from it. So this is something that you know i've seen photos of what look like you know individual tank crews or or you know our artillery uh uh, sections having it. So this yeah this is no longer something where a command post with a diesel generator can run it. Um, this is something where, you know, four soldiers in a tank might have one of these that they can quickly set up, unfold, you know, leave the solar panel out. Uh, and so it it takes very little power, very little weight, very little space. Uh, so it, it really is a big change from, you know, what we've seen you know, 30 years ago, when we had the Persian Gulf War, people often said that was the first space war, uh, when American forces were making significant use of space for tactical communications, um, but not at the level of individual squads having their own high bandwidth space communications on on them at all times.
1: Just a quick question: If you happen to know, it. I mean, how much does it actually weigh?
0: Boy, that's that's a. Great question that I I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but it's, you know, I'm quite certain in a a soldier would be able to carry all the necessary, you know, the all the ground equipment. Uh, on that you know it would probably not be the heaviest thing that they're carrying it's it's really you know this is not like how you used to have a 10 foot wide dish in your backyard if you know people remember the old days of of getting satellite tv this is uh you know it's it's bigger than your cell phone but in pizza boxes is is kind of the right size to think of for the antenna and
1: and david this is well beyond starlink i mean Which space-based assets or products has Ukrainian military used and how have they used them?
0: Well, they've they've made significant use. And I think if the Persian Gulf War was the first space war, what's interesting about this war is it's the first case of a country that is not a space power making significant use of space assets. Uh, Ukraine doesn't uh, doesn't have a space launch capability, doesn't own its own satellites, um, but it's able to make pretty significant use of space capabilities uh, that it's able to acquire commercially. So Starlink has been probably the, uh, the most critical because of its ability to provide uh, communications on the battlefield. Uh, before Starlink, they actually used to use another uh, competitor called Viasat, uh, though, and we can maybe talk about this later, uh, Russia actually conducted a very successful cyber attack against Viasat at the beginning of the war, uh, and Starlink was able to come in uh, very quickly and replace it. We also know that they have been acquiring uh, satellite reconnaissance uh, satellite data. they've been acquiring imagery from commercial sources, uh, optical imagery. another thing that uh, you know people may be less familiar with, but that's been critical, uh, what we call synthetic aperture radar imagery, which is uh, essentially you're you're able to use a radar like a camera. Uh, You use the radar beam to illuminate as if you're shining a giant flashlight down from space and through very sophisticated computer processing that I will not pretend to understand how that math works. uh, But through computer processing, you get an image uh, and you're able to do this at night or through clouds Uh, and uh, also can be particularly effective at detecting moving targets uh, within an image through uh, uh, noticing Doppler changes. So Ukraine's been able to get you know, fast enough for tactical value, um, images that will show vehicles or, you know, what the opposing forces are up to that they're able to get at night and through clouds. Um, less is known, you know, I, I don't know about what they might be getting for signals intelligence or electronic triangulation on where Russian forces are. Believe it or not, there are some commercial capabilities in that realm, not so much for communications interception. Commercial companies aren't supposed to be listening in on phone calls calls, but there definitely are some commercial triangulation capabilities. There's a company that monitors for GPS disruptions from space, uh, which Ukraine might be using that. Uh, and what they you know, if they're getting intelligence products from the US or other NATO countries, you know, that's, that's not something that those countries would talk about. But I, I certainly wouldn't rule out the possibility that we at least provide them some intelligence products that come from space.
1: You know, David, in your piece, you mentioned an Android app that's nicknamed Uber for artillery. I mean, what's that?
0: sure uh the the ukrainians call it GIS arta and I'm assuming GIS probably means uh geographic information system uh an acronym that we often use um the the ukrainians and this this is a great example of that decision advantage uh approach that uh, Brian talked about where the way it works is instead of a highly centralized system where things get reported up to a high-level command center uh you know the staff officers figure out a plan and then push out orders to artillery units, Um, it's like Uber in the sense that units that are collecting information, whether it be eyeballing where a Russian unit is or a drone or somebody analyzing a satellite photograph, can essentially say, you know, in the system, geolocate and indicate here's a target worth attacking at this location and this is what we think it is. All of the users around the battlefield will then have, you know, the same way that an Uber driver would see current people who want to be picked up. The artillery units can see, uh, what are the possible targets to shoot at? And if I realize that, Hey, my unit's in a good position to fire, our guns are ready. Uh, I can click on that somehow and indicate my unit will take that target on. Um, So it's a distributed system where individual low low, you know, essentially tactical units who find targets are communicating almost directly with the units that are able to conduct fires uh, with, uh, you know, with high level headquarters providing a, a much less reduced role. Now, this requires sharing a lot of data. You know, if if all I need to do, if I'm if I'm a higher headquarters and the model is I issue fire orders, all I need to do to a fire unit is get them information that says, put this ammunition on these coordinates at this time. Um, The way that GIS ARTA works, essentially, everybody needs to get data showing the whole battlefield. I've got to get target, you know, that that's a lot of data to move back and forth. So being able to work in that distributed fashion really depends on the kind of high bandwidth communication down to the very lowest tactical level uh, that Brian discussed earlier.
1: And he, here's a question that's open to either one of you that actually comes out of last week's podcast: Is there even a point to camouflaging tanks anymore?
2: Uh, so I'll I'll take that. So one uh, one issue is um, you know you need multispectral camouflage to be able to defeat all the sensors that are out there. You know, as as David just brought up, we've got. Um, SAR, uh, S- synthetic aperture radar that can image something that even is even if it's under a piece of camouflage, you can determine that it's likely a tank because of its radar returns. Um, you've also got infrared imagery. So you've got to now somehow uh, show that it looks like a you, you camouflage the infrared signature of the tank, or if you're going to create a decoy, it has to have its own infrared signature. Um, so camouflage and decoying now is becoming much more complicated as you've got multi-spectral capabilities that can be deployed from commercial sources um, to be able to you know look look at every particular target. Now it's still possible you know to create confusion by putting decoys out there it's just that your decoys won't be perfect you have to recognize that at some point your adversary will sort it all out Um, and the question is can you exploit that period while your adversary is sorting it out to take advantage and take the initiative so can you Take advantage of the delay while they're you know sorting out what the real targets are to attack the enemy, and the Ukrainians, by virtue of having this decision-making advantage and and having applications, you know, like the Uber for artillery, to be able to quickly um, take advantage of an opening where they see the Russians, you know, dithering while they're waiting to to launch an attack. Um, the other thing it does is if you put some camouflage and some decoys out there, you might force your opponent to have to attack everything to try to do it quickly. Um, which means now they're expending more weapons. And so that's been useful. And there's been cases in Ukraine where where the Ukrainians have used decoys uh, and deception effectively to drive up the number of weapons that Russia has to use, which has helped to deplete the Russian magazines over time.
1: So that sort of speaks to perhaps that Russia just doesn't have anything comparable. Is that true?
2: Yeah, Russia doesn't have the the same kind of. Um, they've not exploited the access to commercial systems, and in a lot of cases, commercial companies have cut off Russia's access to some of these technologies. And you know the kinds of Western companies that build the apps, like the Ukrainians are using, or Ukrainians themselves. Are not making those available to Russian um, developers either. So, so Russia, just by virtue of the fact it's been cut off from a lot of sources of technology, um, is not able to leverage these same advantages. But you can envision situations where the opponent of NATO or the uh, could access these technologies just as easily as the Ukrainians have. And I think that's one thing that hasn't gotten enough attention: is that. Yes, today it's Russia that's not able to take advantage of this, and they're on the losing end. But in the future, it could be another opponent, and they could, like Iran, could turn this around and use the same technologies against uh, U.S. allies.
0: And I think one particular thing to note there is that China has much more significant military space assets of its own. Now, it probably wouldn't be able to access Western commercial technologies. um, But uh, one thing that's uh, quietly happened without many people realizing it is the degree to which China has really surpassed Russia in space capabilities. Um, China has been putting up a tremendous number of ISR, uh, surveillance and reconnaissance satellites, in the last few years, um, probably has significantly better space surveillance capability than russia does at this point um, i think it's been a little surprising how how poorly russia has done given capabilities that we would have assumed it was using and people often think oh well you know there are lots of hackers and computer programmers in russia but you know i think their their military has been much less able to tap into um, whatever skills are available in its population more generally uh, whereas ukraine first of all i think ukraine w- was underappreciated as how much technical talent it has for one thing actually russia used to buy quite a few of its satellites from ukraine a lot of the former soviet space industry had been based in ukraine up until the invasion of Crimea, Russia was buying some of its military satellites from Ukrainian producers. So there's a there's a fair there's and and Ukraine has really made an effort to uh, you know to to kind of you know the same way that I, I think Israel has to make you know doing tech uh, a cool thing for its youth and has been able to to make use of that in its military. The the way that the Russian military still I, I think is much more Soviet in the sense of being a very top heavy politicized um, and just really pretty miserable institution to be in if you're a young soldier that 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 has probably not helped them to capitalize uh, on bringing tech into the force the way a country that feels like it's you know really fighting for its survival and allowing uh, innovation in its force to has been able to do.
1: Speaking of misery I mean misery is definitely shared not just for soldiers but also for sailors I mean Without having access to these third-party space-based assets or their various different products that are produced from these uh, commercial entities, would the sinking of the Moskva even be possible?
2: So on the Moskva, um, commercial technologies played a big role. Uh, They, you know, the commercial uh, imagery allowed them to understand in general where the ship was. Uh, They were able to communicate the location of the ship uh, back to launchers that were along the shoreline that, that didn't have a you know, connection back to a wired sort of communication system. Um, and then arguably the, the TB2s, uh, the, the drones that they were able to buy from Turkey that were commercially derived, um, also played a role in helping to confuse the air defense systems of the Moskva. So commercial technology really played a big role in the sinking of the Moskva. Um, It may not have been, you know, the thing that actually killed the ship. You know, that was going to be the Neptune cruise missile that the Ukrainians build themselves. But uh, most of the pieces of the kill chain had a commercial element to them.
1: Now, both of you have said that Russia's war in Ukraine is a preview of how wars are going to be fought in the future. And Brian, you should go first. Why did you say that, or, or write that, rather? What do you see as an expert in naval operations? Is there an example of it from this conflict?
2: Well, I think we've seen, you know, what Moscow was sort of an early example, and then since then we've seen uh, attacks on uh, amphibious ships uh, in the harbor near Mariupol. Um, we've seen um, examples where. Uh, Naval forces were successful attacking Russian ships going by Snake Island. Um, a lot of these attacks were made possible thanks to communications that were provided by Starlink, um, by by satellite communications that they got commercially, um, and then in many cases the the imagery uh, that allowed them to at least build that initial targeting picture uh, was provided by a commercial entity as well. You know, so you're seeing these commercial technologies. Make a, a in, an entrance, if you will, um, and be part of the kill chain. And I think in the past, and the U.S. also views these as mostly as parts of the intelligence community. We use these systems to um, you know help build uh, analysis and a, and a picture, but we don't necessarily use them tactically. Um, And, you know, commercial communications like in Marsat are used in the U.S. military, like the Navy, uh, but mostly for administrative communications, not for operational communications. So I think we're seeing now that the validity or the value of these commercial systems in uh, actual military action and in conducting uh, and executing kill chains. So, you know, that, that to me, that's the big transition. And you're seeing even in the Black Sea, which is a pretty small theater, Inter, you know, systems being used and, and multiple examples of anti-ship warfare uh, being executed using commercial or commercially derived systems.
1: Am I right in thinking that this is possibly, you know, one of the fewer or, or perhaps even the first where both of the parties involved have access to space-based systems where they own them as a national government entity, or whether they're being, you know, you know, these products are coming from third parties that are non-government, um, that are commercial, or, or even in one case, for instance, I mean, there's an uh, Ukrainian NGO that bought an ISAI satellite. I mean, is this the first time where both sides have had access to space?
0: You know, at at the level of space information that the two parties have here, I think so. Uh, I mean, they're like, if you were to go back to uh, the 1991 Gulf War, I mean, in a sense, Iraq would have had access to weather forecasts that were derived from satellites the same way anybody else on the earth would. Um, but at the level of really having some serious space capability, uh, and again, what, what's, what's surprising is that, you know, both parties have it, even though only one of the two actually can launch an. Owns its own, owns its own satellites. So I think that that is a significant change. And yeah, you, uh, you know, it, it would be interesting, I suppose, to look at, say, the recent uh, conflicts between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and see to what, you know, neither of which, of course, has its own indigenous space capabilities. Uh, did either a country make real use of buying commercial imagery or commercial satellite communication? Uh, I, I, I throw that out as something that it would be a good example to look at. I, I admit to not being very you know I have not done that looking myself uh but that would be an example where you you might see two countries neither of which has real space capabilities um but who I could imagine a variety of ways they might have found it useful to to make use of products of of space uh surveillance and space communication
1: and David Also, to give your piece to, I mean, you also wrote that this war is um, a real turning point. You wrote that it's a a potential harbinger for the future, especially for the commercial space sector. When you're saying it's a real harbinger for the future, is this something that is just going to be used by nations or could it be used by terrorists? Could it be used by other folks that are, you know, not per se a government organization or entity?
0: You know, I think some capabilities certainly could. There's a tremendous amount of open source information. For example, uh, it, it, the some, some you know some of the the nerds who like playing with satellite data discovered that the European Space Agency's radar uh, imagery satellites, you can actually see where air defense radars are based on certain interference patterns that appear in those images, and that data is just public. You know, anybody can download that from their website updated very frequently. So there's a lot of open source information where you would have to actively try to keep people away from it. And that that's pretty difficult. Um, on a commercial customer basis, you know, it would probably be relatively difficult for, you know, ISIS to have a kind of really major supply of imagery from, from a commercial company. Um, I think they have to do relatively well at figuring out who their customers are. If they want to buy an image here, you know, kind of the, the further Away, the, the more removed from the transaction. Um, so I think it, it would probably be difficult for a terrorist group to get that kind of information. Um, you know, one assumes though that, you know, it d- doesn't take much more than a credit card to get a Starlink account. So I, I would assume non state actors would be able to at least set up a Starlink account. And, you know, if the FBI or whoever figures out what's up, they would be able to tell Starlink to cut off service. Um, but I, I, I think it is absolutely going to proliferate space capabilities to. To you know, many nations and yeah, you know, some or we know that NGOs, for example, have used space-based data to look for illegal fishing uh, and you know put data together from variety of different sources, like noticing tracking ships with something called AIS, an identification transponder. Ship well, an illegal fishing ship will often turn those off. They then have used imaging satellites. Say, well, we know it was here when the signal stopped. Can we see a ship in images taken right right after that, and then track the ship visually for a while? And that's and those are just uh, you know non you know activist groups who are trying to figure out uh, who's fishing illegally in the oceans.
2: Yeah, and it's also um, being used by countries that are trying to protect their own fishing grounds, for example. So it's part of the gray zone competition happening between uh, the United States and and China, but also other countries in China. So you're seeing um, you know space capabilities that are available commercially being employed in these situations other than war, also uh, as part of this effort to uh, compete. You know in uh, maritime commons and in the you know, other areas of, of the commons.
1: David. Mm-hmm. Brian, thank you both so much for your time.
0: Thank you very My much, pleasure. Laura.
1: That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vaga Meridian and listen to Cavis Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter.